HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. We all eat, and we all desperately need a sustainable environment within which to exist. We all of us, every American, every human being on the planet, needs those two things desperately has to have those two things, their life necessities. And they come together in the farm bill. You'll hear more about that story on this episode of No Farms, No Future, a podcast by American Farmland Trust. I'm John Piotti, President and CEO of American Farmland Trust. In each new episode, we'll take up a critical challenge faced by farmers. Join us to hear their voices as they face tough decisions facing their world and ours. For the rest of this episode, we'll turn it over to our producer, Gail Chaddock. Congress takes up a massive farm bill every five years. It's an opportunity to shape the future of American farming and food policy, and it's up for renewal this year. We've asked author Don Stewart to help us understand how farmers and environmentalists, often at odds, came together in the 1980s on a new direction for farm policy in this bill. But first, we're talking with AFT President John Piotti on what's at stake in this year's Farm Bill. John, what do you want to see out of a new Farm Bill? Oh, I have many aspirations. How much, how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> I think the most important thing in the upcoming Farm Bill is that we continue to support the great programs that have been incorporated into federal agricultural policy over the last 40 or so years. There really are some super programs that work. They help farmers get conservation practices on the ground. They help interested farmers who want to protect their land with permanent conservation easements to do so. And those programs are all oversubscribed, and there's room and need for more funding. So that's item number one. But if I could wave my hand and change everything, I think the crux of what is ultimately needed in agricultural policy is for us to compensate farmers, not just for the food they grow, but also for the broad range of critical, essential 
environmental services that they provide. So that runs the gamut, right? It includes wildlife habitat, water recharge, carbon sequestration. They do so much that provides societal good. And we don't directly compensate them for that. Some of these conservation programs provide cost share funds, which might go towards them doing these things. But I think in an ideal world, that's what our farm bill would do. It would pay farmers fairly for all of the critical services they provide to society. You've been in the business of closely watching farm bills for a long time. Was there any particular bill that you thought was especially significant? Well, the 1985 Farm Bill really stands out, and I was not involved in agricultural policy at that point in time, but the organization I now run, American Farmland Trust, was. We played a pivotal role in advancing what became known as the conservation title into the 1985 Farm Bill, and that was really transformational. Most of the programs that exist today began in some form in the 1985 Farm Bill, I should say most of the programs that really advance conservation. They've made a huge, huge difference. We would not be having the conversation we have today about climate smart farming practices, regenerative practices, whatever you want to call it, if it hadn't been for the last 38 years of experimentation that has been possible because of passage of the 85 Farm Bill and the conservation title in it. Having said that, the innovation didn't stop there, and American Farmland Trust played a very large role in continuing to refine some of the programs that were teed up in 85 and adding new ones and adding new concepts like the concept of conservation compliance. The conservation title of the Farm Bill is a relatively small part of this big, huge bill. Most of the funding is in Title I. Well, most of the funding is in nutrition, but most of the money that directly supports farmers is in Title I, the commodity title. AFT advanced this notion of what's called conservation compliance. To be eligible for funding under Title I, you had to take at least basic steps towards conservation. Now, conservation compliance has sort of gone in and out of fashion over time, but it still exists in a form that still does some good. Some of us would love to see it expanded a little bit, uh, giving it a little bit more teeth. But that's a second innovation that has been incorporated into past farm bills, which has been truly significant. And then a third one I'll point out is federal funding for agricultural land protection through what is now called ASEP, the Agricultural Conservation Easement Program. That came later. That did not come in the 85 Farm Bill. It wasn't incorporated until the mid-1990s. And when it was incorporated, the federal government built upon the successful state programs that AFT had helped create elsewhere. But even though there were some members of Congress who for years were trying to get farmland protection written into the federal farm bill and Senator Leahy of Vermont and his predecessor, Jim Jeffords from Vermont, really were the banner carriers for this. It took a long time to get there. So I would say that is the third big innovation of past farm bills, uh, recognizing the importance of farmland protection and adding that as part of the conservation title. 
That's been the past. The future, in my mind, as I mentioned before, would ideally add more funding to those programs, which have now been proven to be highly successful, and ultimately go beyond that and figure out ways of providing more compensation to farmers who are doing the right thing on the land and providing a host of essential environmental services to society. Before the 85 Farm Bill, there was a lot of concern that environmentalists and farmers were at loggerheads Mm -hmm. over lots of things. How did AFT help bridge that gap and help people see that they actually had common interests? Well, AFT was was founded exactly for that purpose, um, to bridge the gap between the environmental slash conservation community and the agricultural community. The history of AFT is fascinating. I won't give you the full detail, but there were people who really felt that the tension between the farming community and environmental community, which was rife in the mid-1970s. You know, that had been a period of environmental awakening. We had passed the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act, a lot of things that dealt with large polluters, factories, wastewater treatment plants, and the like. And the next target in a lot of people's mind were farmers. Farmers were viewed as polluters. And AFT, or I should say the people who ultimately founded AFT said, we have to change that mindset. You need to be a good steward of the land to be a successful farmer. And farmers need to really be viewed as part of the solution here. But our key founder, Peggy Rockefeller, served at that time on the board of the Nature Conservancy. And of course, today, the Nature Conservancy does great stuff with farms. They're tremendous leaders in this area. They did nothing back then. But Peggy teed up to the board, we need to get involved in the space. We need to begin to think differently and engage with farmers and recognize the contributions that they can provide to enhance the environment. TNC's board said no. The idea was teed up to Audubon. Audubon said no. The idea was teed up to several farm organizations. They all said no. The reason? Because all these groups had defined themselves as being against the other. And the only solution was to create a brand new organization. So from the beginning, AFT was founded for the purpose and with the recognition that it was critically important to bring together these two worlds. And that's exactly what we did. We were true to our cause and we pulled together a coalition that became known as the Conservation Coalition that included both farm groups who could be pushed to think about working with environmentalists and some environmentalists that didn't think that farmers were the demons. We pulled these folks together. It helped that we had some incredible staff, but the combination of the quality of the people and maybe the fact that AFT was operating in new space really allowed for outsized impacts. And one of those was the movement towards the 1985 Farm Bill. It began with an AFT white paper that was all about soil health. And ultimately, it led to the transformation that occurred with that Farm Bill. Thank you, John. Let's take a deeper look now at the alliances that move Farm Bills into new territory. Don Stewart's book, No Farms, No Food, takes a closer look at how farmers and environmentalists came to see common interests in a new farm policy 
and where that's taking us today. Don, thank you for joining us. Can we start with your own history? How did you escape a career practicing law? (laughs) Well, that's a pretty good question. I was in love with the law until I started actually practicing it. (laughs) Uh, The actual work of practicing law, I didn't care for it. And after I had four years in the Navy and JAG and then another six practicing in a trial firm, my wife and I took a year off. And in the course of that year, I decided to heck with it. I want to build a commercial fishing boat. So we built a commercial fishing vessel, went salmon trolling in Alaska for uh, about a decade. Tell us about that. (laughs) Well, it's quite a bit like farming. (laughs) (laughs) You're in business. You're a private entrepreneur. Something goes wrong. It's going to be up to you to fix it. And uh, I'd say probably fishing in the wilds of the North Pacific or Alaska isn't all that different from driving many miles up some dirt road and farming someplace a good deal of distance away and where your whole livelihood is growing out of the ground or in the fishing industry, it's all tied to the boat you're in. There's somewhat similar lifestyles and also somewhat similar attitudes toward the world. And I might add there's one other similarity. We're both vulnerable to regulation. Both had completely inelastic markets that we were selling into. Upon return, I ended up representing the commercial fishing industry as executive director of their trade association, a job that involved quite a bit of legislative lobbying. I spent six years fighting sport fishermen, (laughs) and we were basically fighting over the last fish. And the whole frustration of the thing, the salmon industry, both sport and commercial, they depend on the survival of salmon. So you don't have an industry, commercial or recreational, if you don't have fish. But that all just somehow ultimately ended up getting lost in the battles that we had. And it was incredibly frustrating. And actually, when I came to work for AFT, it struck me immediately how the circumstances were so similar that farmers and environmentalists had so much in common and needed to be working together, needed to find a joint vision for how the world worked. The inherent necessity of collaboration I worked for AFT for 11 years between 2000 and 2011, and it was absolutely the best job I ever had. Uh, The whole work of the organization appealed to me. You know, farmers and ranchers, one way or another, manage about half of the land in continental United States. Why do you think farmers have been wary of environmentalists suggesting how they should do that? (laughs) Well, there are some easy answers to that, I guess. You could say it's politics. I think you could say it's cultural. And also, it has to be said in answer to that question (laughs) that there are a lot of farmers who are environmentalists and environmentalists who are farmers. It's really easy to stereotype and generalize. And so I I apologize if (laughs) I do so. But I think that farmers are largely rural in their orientation, independent business people struggling with the competitive business environment all the time. Meanwhile, environmentalists have a penchant for preferring regulatory solutions. Look, environmental community is struggling for the planet to survive. (laughs) Environmentalists see this as existential, and they don't want anything to stand in the way. On the other hand, if you're in the farm business, you're in one of the most competitive industries on the planet. You're competing with multinational corporations. You're also competing with people growing crops and 
taking him to market with a horse and wagon. People are barely self-sustaining at this. Right, right. You're up against global competition. It's that simple, and it touches every single farm product. In the 1930s, when the farm bill started, that was not the case. It was only the dry bulk commodities that were really in international competition. But that's not true today. Today, everything is in international competition, and it's very dramatic competition. And farmers just don't have any control over those things. And they don't have a lot of leeway. And I might add, most of them are not getting rich doing this either. So you just have to face... There are some very real environmental problems that have got to be dealt with. It takes some care and some thought and some perspective to figure out how you're going to deal with it because the very last thing you want is to drive those farmers out of business. You do that, you have got an environmental problem. That land right. uh, that land goes out of agriculture. It does not return to natural forest. I guarantee you when land disappears from farming, It falls into uses that are much more intensive, much less environmentally friendly. So it is absolutely in the environmental community's best interest to see agriculture thrive and succeed. So somehow we got to find a way to do both of those things. And to me, that was the genius of American Farmland Trust. It was why I found the organization so appealing and, and the work so gratifying. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of Heritage Radio Network. Stay with us for the rest of this episode of No Farms, No Future. HRN is thrilled to be the home of this new podcast because America's irreplaceable farmland grows our food and supports a trillion-dollar-a-year agriculture economy. Farmland is the foundation of our rural communities, providing jobs, recreational opportunities, and a deep connection to the land. Farms are also critical in the fight against climate change. Learn more about American Farmland Trust and how to get involved at farmland.org. Now let's return to today's show. You know, one of the things I loved about your book was that you interviewed many of the early leaders of AFT. Reading it, you feel like you're present at the creation. (laughs) What was it about their approach that you found helpful? There's no doubt that the guiding foundational drive for the creation of the organization was farmland loss. Once you take 100 acres and divide it into a bunch of little parcels and sell it to innumerable people, you're going to have to think of some astounding change in the world to see how that land ever goes back to agriculture. It is gone. And that was happening in 1980. There'd been a study that demonstrated it, and the founders were very concerned. So I would say that accounts for the formation of the organization. They wanted to do whatever they had to do to stop that loss of land and keep it in agriculture, keep farmers farming it. And every one of those founders, these were people of the world. I mean, they had been around. They had a lot of experience And they knew they were going to be in the policy arena. There was no doubt whatsoever that they were going to have to work public policy. And that was absolutely going to include the United States Congress, as well as state legislatures and probably county councils all over the country. And so then you have to ask yourself, you need policy. You want to protect agricultural land. So you walk into a legislator's office anywhere and you say to that legislator, hey, I've got this great idea to protect agriculture and to protect agricultural land. 
what is the very first question you're going to be asked? It's going to be, well, where are the farmers on all this? Right. Well, you know, if you haven't got the farmers on board, you got nothing. You're out of that office. You're history. And conversely, if you say, look, we're losing agricultural land. It's an environmental problem. We, we've got to do this. We've got to protect the environment. And uh, how are we going to do that? What's the next question they're going to ask? Where's the environmental community? Right. Again, if you haven't got the environmental community on board, you're nobody. You've got nothing to offer. There is another option. You can go in and try to beat the opposition over the head and beat them down and walk over them. And that does work sometimes, very occasionally. If you do succeed like that, the odds are whatever you gained, you're not going to end up keeping for very long. It's not a good answer, it's not sustainable, and it's basically not a very logical way to approach this kind of problem. This problem really did require both sides working together. I suspect they all knew that going in. If they didn't, they figured it out pretty quickly. And so where does that leave it? It seems to me instantly that there's only one way you're going to get this done, and that's if you can find answers that are supportable by both sides. And to do that, you just have to collaborate. You got to sit down and ask, how can we solve this problem? How will it work for you? And you know what? When you do that, the realities of the world are things are complicated. There's a pretty good odds on chance there's some way they're going to be able to work together. Uh, and I might add one other thing. When you do walk in, when you have groups that are in opposition, and I'll say like commercial and sport fishermen, <laughs> or farmers and environmentalists, groups that are sort of inherently opposed to one another and that have a long history of fighting. If you walk into a legislator's office and lay down a bill, and you've got support for that bill from both sides of that equation, those legislators are so blown away by that, they don't know, they cannot act fast enough. You have solved their problem. They do not now have to be arbiters of who wins and who loses. Now they can be the good guy to everybody. And it is, believe me, it's massively powerful. So if you can orchestrate that kind of phenomenon in the policy arena, it's just gold. It's absolute gold. And I think that's basically what AFT discovered. I think they sort of knew, but I think the realities of it became very clear during those very first few years they were in business. And by obviously by 1985, they had their act together. They knew exactly where this was going uh, and exactly what they had to do to get there. Why are these farm bills so important? We all eat, right? And we all desperately need a sustainable environment within which to exist. All of us, every human being, every American <laughs> needs those two things, desperately has to have those two things. They're life necessities. And they come together in the Farm Bill, or at least as of 1985, they had definitely begun to come together with the continuing growth in our planet's population and the complexity uh, of our life together. Every person that is added to that population, it, it just adds complexity to our uh, collective lives. Dealing with that requires that we s collaborate to solve those problems. We can fight, <laughs> but that is not where the answer lies. The answer lies in collaboration. It always will. 
Can you take us back to the Dust Bowl? Was that a, a crucible for these farm bills? I absolutely think it was a forerunner. Keep in mind, the Dust Bowl was a national catastrophe. And unfortunately, it was taking place in the middle of the Depression and just an awful time. And we all turned to federal public policy to find an answer. And fortunately, there were answers. There's a story that I recall about a committee hearing on the first farm bill in one of the hearing rooms in Congress. And one of the, uh, it was either a legislator or it might have been a witness, stood up during their testimony and walked over to the side of the room and pulled aside the curtains so that everyone could see outside and see this red sky outside. And, and it was happening. Dust, literally dust from the Midwest was blowing all the way across the country and was darkening the skies in places as far away as Washington, D.C., and wow. said, that is your country blowing away. <laughs> look, look at that. Right. We got to do something about this. This is America blowing away. And it was a very powerful first example of people nationally coming together around the issues of successful, continuing, prosperous agriculture and its relationship to our supply of food and doing something about it. And they bloody well did. You can criticize it. There were things about it that don't exactly make perfect sense, but nonetheless, they took action, and that very first farm bill was dramatically successful. Don, you've taken us through a sequence of farm bills in your book. Was there any that struck you as especially significant? I'd say probably 1985 I would list up there as being very important. 1985 was when Congress, for the very first time, adopted a conservation title. Uh, up until 1985, really, the farm bill had been driven almost entirely by the farm industry. That had probably begun to change before that, but this was the first time that we actually had a conservation title included in the farm bill, a recognition that agriculture was obviously all about farmers succeeding in business, but that that success in business might itself depend upon the continued availability of soil, a continued healthy environment within which those farmers could operate, and an environment that would be healthy and tolerable for the rest of us as well. So this was the first time that became a major issue. That then evolved into uh, specific programs like the Federal Farm and Ranch Lands Protection Act that later it's changed its name now, but that protected agricultural land. EQIP, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, which is sort of a gorilla of farm bill programs that provides cost share assistance, helps to pay a share of the cost of conservation practices and other environmental improvements on agricultural land. And I have to say that it's significant that they did that because there's an awful tendency to feel like, well, if a farmer's not doing what is environmentally good, then the heck with them. They should just do it. We should make them do it. What the heck? What are they, how, how do they get away with not addressing these environmental issues? And you can take that position, and many do, but if you take that position, you've got to face up to the consequences of that line of thinking because these farmers are in an incredibly competitive environment. They compete 
bitterly all across the planet. They don't have any control over the price they charge for the products that they sell. They sell it into a wholesale marketplace to huge, huge companies that distribute it all over the world. They're just pawns in the whole process. So the only way that they survive, and it's horrifically competitive, so the only way that they survive in business uh, is to manage to get by on the price they can get for that product, a price that is driven down to its very lowest possible point by all the other producers of these products all over the planet. And when you're in that position, you don't have leeway to start messing, oh, I think I'll uh, spend a bunch of money on a, a new water-friendly sprinkler system or drip irrigation system, or I, I think what I'll do is I'll put in some cross-fencing so my cattle don't overgraze some part of the land. Or, well, I know I'll plant some cover crops during the months that my cash crop isn't growing to keep the land secure, or I'll go to no-till agriculture so that uh, my soil doesn't blow away. Those are all incredibly important things for farmers to do. And they help the environment, hugely help the environment. But it's very difficult to just expect that, well, the farmer should just freaking pay for that. Sounds great and sounds very principled. <laughs> but the fact is, you force that farmer to pay for the entire cost of that, and you don't do this with care uh, and responsibility, you find yourself way worse off. Uh, that farm's gone. That farm's going to be history. Uh, and when it's gone, you're not going to like what replaces it. This 1985 farm bill is a point in time when basically America woke up to an appreciation that maybe we shouldn't just stuff this down these people's throat. But maybe what we ought to do is find a way to work with them to help share the cost and the burdens of accomplishing this. One other little thing, it turns out that for us, for the rest of us, getting environmental benefits and improvements on agricultural land is one heck of a bargain. It's the cheapest possible way we can go about getting environmental gains. It's very affordable for us. For the farmer, that's a quite a different matter. It's not probably affordable for the farmer. So we have to make a judgment. And it seems to me this is a hell of a bargain <laughs> for the rest of us. And I think we woke up to that. Don, thank you for your work on these issues over the years. Thank you for writing about it in such a clear way. And thank you for joining us for this podcast. We know where you live. We'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> God, I hope that's not a threat. <laughs> it's a promise. Be, that's good. I would be more than happy. I absolutely enjoyed joining you, Gail, and very much appreciate what AFT does, obviously. Thank you. Let's get back to John Piotti for a look forward. John, what kind of coalitions do you think are possible politically that could come out of the deliberations over the next farm bill? Well, I think we're in a very different place than we were 30, 40 years ago. Maybe that's an obvious statement. One place that is very different is that a lot of people who never had any connection to agriculture in the past have developed an appreciation of farmers and the work they do, an appreciation of where their food comes from. And so we see policymakers from congressional districts and states that aren't generally associated with farming now paying real attention to these issues because their constituents care about these issues. And so if 40 years ago, what was most important was putting environmentalists 
and farmers in the room together to try to figure things out. I think the tent is a lot broader today, and that is only good for the future of agriculture. I think the discussion, the coalitions have to be really about almost everybody, right? We all eat. <laughs> We all should be caring about where our food comes from. And this is no longer a rural issue. This is a broader societal issue, in part because eaters are everywhere, but in part because the role that farmers can play to help improve our environment is critically important to everyone, regardless of where you live. So agriculture is no longer its own little side thing. At its best, it is going to be viewed as that critical foundation and cornerstone of a sustainable civilization. John, thank you so much. And thank you again to Don Stewart for joining us today. You bet. Now I'll turn you back to John Piotti for some words about our next episode. Join us on episode 11 of No Farms, No Future, where we will be talking with farmers facing new challenges on the land about their own hopes for the next farm bill. That's next on No Farms, No Future, the podcast of American Farmland Trust, created in collaboration with the Heritage Radio Network and produced by The Food Voice, executive producer Louisa Kasdan and audio director and composer Michael Moss. I'm Gail Chaddock. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.